We had a great crowd here today. I'm excited that you're here with us. Uh, you know, last New Year's, I made a resolution that I would wear a sports coat one day this year. And so I had to get that in before I missed my window. Um, hey, my name is Chris, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet. I know we have some new faces here, and I'm, oh man, very excited to have you with us. Uh, here we are on the seventh day, if I did my accounting right, the seventh day of Christmas. And as Gabe said before, uh, Christmas is a 12-day celebration. So uh, we as a culture, if we're honest, uh, we're very good at anticipating things, building up to things. Now, Advent, the season we've just come out of, helps teach us that as it shapes us and forms us to be prepared for Christmas. But if we think about wider culture that we interact with, we are much better at anticipating things. In fact, Ronald Rollheiser, he's a pastor, he says it this way, our society knows how to anticipate an event, but not how to sustain it. You see, Christmas is a 12-day celebration, and the incarnation of Jesus is certainly worth a 12-day celebration. Amen? Amen. And so if you think about the culture and the things throughout the year, the other holidays, think about Easter or Thanksgiving or your birthday or your favorite holiday. There's always a season that we attach to it that is about preparing, building up the excitement towards. But then when we get to the day, most times it comes and goes. Building up to a wedding, right? Some people have been building up to a wedding for months and months and months and months and even a few years. But then you get to the day and the day comes and then the day goes and it's over. And it's similar for many of the celebrations in our culture. We are good at building up. We are not good at sustaining. And as the church, one thing that the calendar helps us do, here we walk through the Christian calendar that I talk about often, Advent prepares us for Christmas, the same way that Lent, soon enough, will prepare us for Easter. But Christmas is a 12-day celebration, the same way that Easter is a 50-day celebration. We have to be reminded and shaped to extend and sustain the celebrations that are worthy of Jesus. Jesus certainly changes our lives, and Christmas is certainly worth 12 days. So even though the radio stations have kind of switched back to the regular scheduled programming away from the Christmas music, maybe you've taken down your Christmas tree and your lights, and that's okay. But here at Meadows Church, it is certainly still the season of Christmas. As you see behind me, our decorations are still up, and this will be the final Sunday. So in fact, uh, this, this year is interesting in that there is one Sunday of Christmas, right? This Sunday is the Sunday of Christmas. Next Sunday, we'll have made it through the 12 days and we'll be into the season of Epiphany, which we will talk about at the end of the service. And so today I tell you, Merry Christmas. Might be the final time you hear it. Today we're going to look at the gospel account from John. Now all of the gospels, the four accounts, the four evangelists, they give us uh, different perspectives on the story of Jesus. And this is, in fact, a very good thing in that we hear different accounts and different perspectives and different words and different events that happen in the life of Jesus, and we get to piece those together to get a more well-rounded story of Jesus. It's certainly helpful for us. But the four Gospels, when it comes to Christmas, in fact, certainly give us different accounts. For instance, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, which is the shortest, probably the first written, doesn't talk about Christmas at all. Mark is eager to jump right into the ministry of Jesus, and he does. The beginning of Mark is Jesus' ministry when he's about 30 years old, and he jumps right into the ministry. And the Gospel of Mark uses the word immediately all the time. Mark is all about immediately this happened, and then immediately that happened, and he jumps and makes a beeline to the cross. Mark is certainly used as a template, most likely, for the other Gospels, the other two synoptic Gospels, that is Luke and Matthew. 
However, Luke and Matthew, as you're probably aware, contain very much an in-depth Christmas story. These are the verses we've been reading the last few weeks. Maybe you've read them at home with your family. Uh, The Christmas stories found in Matthew and in Luke. Now, these stories are similar, of course, but they give us different perspectives and different visits from different angels and that type of thing. And we get to see different accounts. Both of these, though, from Matthew and Luke, are what I would say from the human perspective. It gives us the human story, right, of Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the angel visiting them and Zachariah and Elizabeth with John the Baptist. It gives us the innkeeper and the Caesar Augustus and all that's going on. It's very historical. It's very human and therefore makes it certainly very beautiful. The Gospel of John is, however, altogether different. Um, I would probably say the Gospel of John is my favorite book in all the Bible. However, it can be difficult to read and understand. It is quite philosophical, very theological. And John's account for Christmas, you could say, is from the divine perspective. It's not the human story at all. It's the divine story from, perhaps you could say it this way, from God's perspective. And John reminds us that though Jesus was born, though the Word becomes flesh, which we'll read in a moment, that Jesus has in fact always been. There has never been a time when Jesus was not. Think back as far as you can think and then add a thousand years and then think furthermore and then think a million years and then we're still not to the beginning of Jesus. You ever do those thought experiments trying to think as far back like how long has God been around or how long is forever in front of us? Do you ever have those moments where you just sit and ponder until your brain just kind of fries out and you can't think anymore? As far as we can think back and forward, there has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, when Jesus is not. So though John gives us his Christmas account of Jesus being born, Jesus has in fact always been. And so today we're going to look at quite a few scriptures. I hope that's okay with you. Last Sunday we had a little special treat with the kids down front today, a little different. We were uh, blessed with a short sermon last Sunday. Amen. We're not going to be blessed as much with a short sermon today, a little more back to normal. But I do believe, in fact, that today's message is quite important for our church. In some ways, this is a message where you're going to hear some things that you have heard over the past year, and that's good. And I hope it's things that you're going to hear throughout the next year, because it is in some ways a vision sermon of the church, but it's coming from John chapter one, John's epic prologue his poetic prologue to his gospel account. And so we're going to read through this together. Now you're going to notice I'm going to skip a few verses, and this is where John jumps aside and begins to talk about John the Baptist. But then we're going to read the parts that talk about Jesus. So you'll notice a few verses skipped, uh, but worry not. John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The true light, which shines, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, Merry Christmas, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, skipping a few verses here and there. Perhaps one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. And once again, as we've been talking the last several weeks, a mysterious passage. One that we can't quite figure out all upon our own. Our intellect isn't strong enough, at least mine's not, to figure out all these deep mysteries of God. For instance, John tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was both with God and the Word was God. This doesn't add up in our human system. How can you be both with something and distinct from it, but also that thing? The Word was both with God and God. We confess this as a Christian. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Most of us know probably, however, that this Bible was not written in English, which is our common language here. It was written in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, but the New Testament mostly in Greek. And as John writes this, he doesn't use the word word. That's what we have translated it into because we've done our best in our English to pull from the depth of the meaning of what John uses. But the word that John uses there is the word logos. Everybody want to say logos with me? One, two, three. Logos. You'll see behind me the title of the message today is the logos of God. Logos is a Greek word that would have been understood both by the Greeks, of course, and by the Jews. And the logos of God, what is this logos? What is this word? Is this the Bible? Is that the word that they're speaking of, that John's speaking of? Is it some moral code? Is it the law? What is the logos of God? In fact, the word logos that John uses has a depth of meaning that we could have a full series on just unpacking the word logos. But it most clearly means the divine logic or the divine understanding of God. In essence, it means this. How does God understand God's own self? The divine logic of God. This is the logos. How does God understand God's own self? The logos. In the beginning was this Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. So what is this Logos? He gives us a clue here with he. And down in verse 14 gives us a further clue. The word, the Logos, becomes flesh. The Logos of God is not words written down. It's not a code. It's not a law. It is a person. And this Logos is, of course, Jesus Christ. And we celebrate Jesus Christ during the season of Christmas of the great incarnation when God, fully God, becomes man, fully man. Something we've talked about here before. Jesus is both fully God, 100% God, while at the same time fully man, 100% human. Now, again, this equation does not add up in our own mathematical system. We cannot fathom fully and comprehend this, the theological term, the hypostatic union that Jesus is fully God and yet fully human. But yeah, this is what we celebrate. And so today, as we move through this scripture, uh, I'm going to do something once again, a little different. Most Sundays, as if you've been here any time, I don't preach from points. I don't have number one, two, and three. Now last week I did to help with the shortened sermon and the kids are up here, but most weeks I don't have points. But today, in fact, I do have three points that I believe are quite very simple 
but very in-depth for us to understand and wrestle with as we move forward. Are we ready? Number one. Thank you, Nate. Number one. Jesus reveals God. Number one, Jesus reveals God. Since the beginning of humanity, we, humans, have done our best to figure out and understand and explain and try to comprehend God or the gods or the universe or whatever you would want to have called it, how we understand that which is bigger and farther beyond our scope of reasoning or what we can comprehend in our own human minds. Why does the sun rise on this side and set over here? Why does the seasons change? Why does it get cold and then warmer and then cold and then warmer? Why does this keep happening? What makes the tides from the ocean come in and out and in and out again? What, how are we to explain these big things that are much bigger than us. And throughout history, we, humanity, have decided to explain them with God, whether we called it God or not, God or gods or goddesses or the universe or whatever have you. We've done our best to explain that which we cannot fully understand. But what we have done in the process, humanity has created gods in our own image. Now, this is quite the opposite of what we read in the Bible that tells us that God, in his infinite wisdom, created us, male and female, in his own image. God created us after him. But what we have done, unfortunately, is we've created gods to look and think like us. Because as we're trying to explain and come up with these concepts, we heap our own selves, our own personalities, our own fears and hates, we heap them upon God. And if we are a violent people, then surely our God is also a violent God. If we hate those people over there, then surely God also hates those people over there. We put our own emotions and feelings and insecurities and what humanity has done time and time again has heaped them upon this God or goddess that they have created. Humanity from our beginning has tried to figure out God. I have good news. Jesus reveals God. God is like Jesus. Now, I say it that way, not the other way around, because, again, God can be this theoretical concept that much of human history has tried to comprehend. But God is like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but, of course, now we do. Jesus reveals God. It says this at the end of John that we just read. John chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Sorry, that was verse 16. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The law was given through Moses. Are we to understand God through the law? This is what the Jews had. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they understood God primarily through his code that he had given them, the law. And God, therefore, had become very capricious. God had become graceless. God was, in fact, rigid. This is how they understood God in many instances. But yet it is Jesus who comes to reveal God. Now, John writes something pretty peculiar here. He says, no one has ever seen God. That's a big statement. And maybe you're thinking, well, is John not familiar with some of these stories in the Old Testament? Does John not know all of these? And in fact, he does. John knows the word as a young Jewish man following his rabbi Jesus. He was quite familiar with the Old Testament. But you're thinking, what, John, what about Adam who walked with God in the garden? 
John, what about Jacob who wrestled with God? What about Abraham who God walked through the covenant with him? Or Abraham who spoke with the three divine strangers? Many attribute to be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. What about Moses who talked with God? Who, who God hid him behind the cleft of the rock as God walked by? Or Moses who spoke with the burning bush? God. What about Isaiah who saw the vision of God in the temple and his robe filled the temple? Or Ezekiel who had a vision of God there by the river Kibar? What about all these theophanies and Christophanies, these appearances of God, these visions of God, all of these in the Old Testament? And here John has the audacity to say, no one has ever seen God. But what John says is quite important. John knows of all those. And John says, compared to Jesus, no one has ever seen God. All of those did their best attempt to explain and reveal and show who God was, but they all pale in comparison to now Jesus, who has come to fully reveal God. Jesus reveals God. John 14, 7, Jesus says it this way. He's talking with his disciples in the upper room. This is the upper room discourse the night before Jesus is killed. Talking to Philip, and Philip says, show us God. Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus responds, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus says it clearly. If you had known me, Jesus, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. To see Jesus, to know Jesus is to see and know the father. Jesus reveals God. They are not separate. They are not different. They do not disagree. They don't have different agendas. They are unified one in the same. It says it this way in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. God is like Jesus. Jesus reveals God. If we perceive a vision or understanding of God that looks different than Jesus, we have made an error. Let me say that again. If we perceive a vision or understanding of God that looks different than Jesus, we have made an error and must correct Number one, Jesus reveals God. Number two, Jesus reveals humanity. Jesus reveals humanity. Humanity, once again, in our attempts to explain that which we couldn't explain, created gods in our own image, and they looked a lot like us and hated who we hated and all those type of things. But from our very beginning, the moment the serpent came into the garden, which we talked about a few weeks ago, and opened our eyes to the possibility of evil, humanity has jumped headlong into the path that leads unto death and destruction. The path away from God who brings life and purpose. And we have followed generation after generation after generation down a path following the way of the serpent, the way of the beast, the way of the Satan, the way of the empire, there's many analogies the scriptures use. The way that leads away from God. Humanity has led this walk, walking further from God into death and destruction, losing out, missing out, misunderstanding and comprehending, in fact, who God was and, in fact, his great love and grace for us. 
And these sins of ours, humanity, me and you, these sins of ours over history have led unto all of the terrible things that we can experience. It's led unto war and slavery, oppression, greed and violence, revenge. All of the things are sins. We've walked headlong into them. In fact, so much so that after so many generations have gone by, humanity, you and I, we can't even imagine another way to live. Well, this is just how it is. Well, you have to have war. Well, you have to have slaves. You have to be greedy and hold on to what's yours because someone else might try to take it. You have to get revenge. It's just the only way. We, humanity, have bought into this lie, these many lies. You've got to have war. Maybe you struggle with that even today. Well, yeah, you've got to have war. Just make sure you're on the right side. You've got to be on the good guys and not the bad guys. But you've got to have war. It's just the way the world is. You've got to have slaves. It's just the way it is. You've got to accomplish more by standing on the backs of others that you can do more yourself. You've got to have oppression and slavery. It's just the way that it is. And humanity only saw this as the reality of our existence until Jesus reveals humanity. What do I mean by this? Jesus comes fully God and yet fully human. And as a full human, Jesus is the one who shows to us, reveals to us just what it is supposed to be like to be a human. Oh, this is the way God has intended humanity to live. And Jesus is waving at us on the wrong path saying, come this way. Come over here. Walk this path that God has laid out for us. Walk this way that leads unto wholeness and fullness of life. In fact, unto eternal life. Walk this way in the blessing and promise of who God is. Walk this way. Jesus shows us and Jesus walks this path, summoning us to come follow him. And it's better for us to understand it for what it is. This path is the kingdom of God. We walk Jesus. We follow Jesus down the path towards God. This leads us to fullness and wholeness of life. What God intends for us to have, by the way. Jesus reveals what humanity should be like. We thought the only way was to have these things and to get revenge. And Jesus says, no, walk this path and don't, don't hate your enemies, love them. Don't get revenge and retaliate, forgive instead. Don't stand on the backs of someone else that you might accomplish more, but bend down and lift them up. Jesus would teach us of helping the least of these, the poor and the vulnerable, the widow and the orphan, the stranger and the immigrant. Can we help these? This is the way, in fact, to be fully human when we have mostly forgotten the way. Jesus reveals humanity. It says it this way in John chapter 1, what we've just read a moment ago. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, Jesus... Who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God, fully human. God creates us, God has created us and loves us so and desires for us to walk the path following after him. To be children of God is to come from the path leading unto death and follow the path leading unto eternal life. Jesus beckons us to come. He shows us the way. He says, this is how we are to be fully human, children of God. Jesus, the very firstborn of all creation, the very son of God, who reveals God and reveals humanity. Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus has emptied himself, fully God, emptied himself to become fully human. This is great news for us, that Jesus would become human, that he might heal humanity. Jesus empties himself being fully human and experiencing the full human life. He enters into this world the same way that you and I do. He is born. This is Christmas. He leaves this world the same way that you and I do in his death. Jesus isn't zapped out. He isn't rescued away. He enters in through death. Jesus experiences death. Now, we'll get to Easter soon enough. Praise the Lord. And we'll talk about what that death does and what happens after that death. But Jesus becomes fully human, meaning he is born. He lives a human life, experiences time, has to slow down and walk and talk and feel emotions and get tired and sleep and eat and have friends and get disappointed. And all the things that we feel, Jesus has also felt. In fact, it says it this way in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus passed through the heavens, fully God, and has now entered into our story as a full human, born and lived a life up until death, and in that time experienced all of the things that we experience. If you remember, we talked about this last year, almost a year ago during Epiphany, the humanity of Christ and all the emotions that he felt. And for us, when we feel these emotions of disappointment and sorrow and hate and fear, when we feel these things, it can lead us to respond in the wrong way. It leads us to respond in sin. You and I, we struggle with sin as we respond to these human emotions. And yet Jesus was able to experience all of them, was tempted in every way as we are. And yet he remained without sin. This is Jesus walking the path, asking us to come follow this way, this way. And when we turn and look and see Jesus, we know that he has fully revealed God. And yet he, at the same time, has revealed humanity. Number one, Jesus reveals God. Number two, Jesus reveals humanity. Number three. Number three might perhaps be the most complicated. Number three, Jesus reveals the Bible. Jesus reveals the Bible. We got any Bible-believing Christians out here? Bible-believing? Amen. I'm a Bible-believing Christian. I hope that you know that. Yet... Yet, everybody got a little tense. Hold on. It is Jesus that reveals the Bible. In our effort to understand God, we Christians sometimes take the Bible and we think, okay, this is what John was talking about when he said the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word of God. This makes sense. The Bible. In the beginning was the Bible, and the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. And what we have done, we've taken the Bible, which is a beautiful thing. 
Let me just stop and say, I read the Bible almost every day. I know I miss days. I love to teach from the Bible and meditate on it and preach and think and try to memorize it and study. I love the Bible. And I believe that us as a church use the Bible as much as any church that I'm familiar with. I love the scriptures and I don't want you to hear just a bunch of what I think. I want us to hear what God's word has to say. Hopefully you know that by now. If you're new with us, you're already experiencing it today. We've been in the Bible quite a bit. But what we do sometimes, if we're not careful, we take the Bible and we think, oh, this is what John is talking about, the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word was in the beginning. Oh, he's talking about the Bible, and we take the Bible and place it equal with God. And in doing so, we in fact make the Bible an idol. Now, follow along with me here because I love and cherish the Bible, and we're going to teach from the Bible every Sunday. But if we're not careful, we can make the Bible into something that it is not supposed to be. And we can place too much weight upon the Bible where it buckles underneath the pressure of what we have placed upon it, which is not what its purpose was. The Bible is the sacred text that we have gotten to put together the breathed out words of God into the minds and hearts of the authors who wrote them down to tell us the history and story of the nation of Israel and the coming of Jesus Christ and his ministry and the early church that begins to spread and spread, culminating with the great magnificent book of Revelation. The Bible serves a very important purpose. The Bible is not God. Jesus is God. So what is the purpose of the Bible? I'm glad you asked. What is the purpose of the Bible? In fact, I don't want you to hear what I have to think. I want you to hear what Jesus has to say. Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He's talking with the Pharisees who, let's be reminded, are the Bible experts. They know the Bible better than you and I, I promise you. He tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. That would have been the Old Testament for them. They didn't have the New Testament yet. You search the scriptures, the Bible, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, Jesus, that you may have life. You search the scriptures because in them, in the Bible, you think that you will find eternal life. You think that in somehow in this code of conduct, in this law, in this history, in this word written down of God, the Bible, that you will find eternal life. And yet it is the purpose of the Bible, Jesus says, to bear witness about Jesus. What is the point of scripture? What is the, what is the telos of scripture? Both Old and New Testament is that it would bear witness to Jesus. And this is what the Bible does infallibly, perfectly. The point of the Bible is to bear witness to Jesus. Jesus has an interesting conversation with his disciples. John chapter 16. Once again, this is the farewell discourse the night before Jesus is crucified. And he has a long back and forth dialogue and teaching with his disciples. And he tells them something very interesting. Verse 12. I, Jesus, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus has gathered with his disciples. They've been talking about many important things. Jesus knows he's about to be crucified the very next day. And that things will begin to change after that. And Jesus gets with his disciples and he says, I have more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
Now, what Jesus does not say is, I got more stuff to say, but we're, we're running out of time. It's getting late. I got other plans. I can't make it. This is not what Jesus says. He says, I have more things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. But I want you to trust me. The Holy Spirit, he will come. The spirit of truth, the spirit of God. And he's going to bring to you the truth that is to come. What is he talking about? This is a man. This is a mysterious passage, and I love it. What is the Holy Spirit? What is Jesus? What are they talking about? What are the things that the disciples can't bear, can't seem to understand? They lived in a world with war and slaves and, and, and women were treated as property and they lived in a way different world than us and they couldn't yet comprehend, fully understand that there was more truth to come that the Holy Spirit would reveal to them. Sadly, we can use the Bible to justify many things. And this is not hypothetical. This has been done many times, sadly, by our Christian brothers and sisters throughout history. We Christians have used the Bible to justify war, to justify slavery, to justify revenge, to justify subjugation of women, to justify all sorts of terrible things. We have and can still, if we want to, use the Bible to justify these things. It has been done and it will be done in the future. If you want to go find the verse that says, thou shalt not have slaves, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find that verse. And yet I can stand here to you today confidently as your pastor in the year of 2023, just barely, and say that I believe slavery is wrong. Now, why can I say that? Because the Holy Spirit in agreement with Jesus, in agreement with God the Father, the Holy Spirit will reveal to the disciples and the disciples who make disciples who make disciples who have led all the way into this guy can say with confidence that Jesus, through his Spirit, reveals to me the truth that slavery is wrong. Now, I've used this analogy in the past and I want to use it today. The Bible, Scripture, is like the soil. The Bible, I want you to think about it like the soil, Okay? The church, you and I, the church, however imperfect we are, the church is like the tree. The tree has to grow from the soil. If you take the tree out of the soil, the tree will die. It cannot grow and flourish apart from the soil. The soil is the words, the scriptures, the Bible. The tree, the church, grows from that. We must be rooted in the scripture. Yet, as the tree grows... There's now a great, think about a great limb from the tree, a huge limb, big enough where you can hang a swing set from, a huge limb, and this limb says slavery is wrong. I can say that with confidence today, though we won't find that in the Bible. And in fact, in our history, there have been people that fought for slavery using the Bible to justify it. Well, they had slaves there, we can have them now. Or use it to justify war. Well, Joshua went to war and God was with them. And so I think God's probably on our side too. So let's go kill these other people. We've used the Bible to justify things. Meanwhile, other people, abolitionists, fighting against slavery, were doing the work of God. Saying, hey, I've understood the truth of Jesus. Come through the spirit that's now communicating to me the truth as the church grows from the scripture to communicate things now. And now we don't have to look around and treat women as property. Though that they did at that time. We don't need to get revenge. We don't need to have war. 
We, as I've talked about before, are part of the church who embraces the kingdom of God and the truth, the reality of what's coming and how we live that out today. There are things the disciples couldn't yet bear to understand. And you're not going to find the verse in the Bible to say it, but it doesn't mean that it's not the truth of God as he reveals it through his spirit. Jesus reveals the Bible. 1 Corinthians, Paul says it this way. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians. I bet we have 1 Corinthians on the screen, don't we? It's 2 Corinthians. That's my mistake. Paul says it this way. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would have put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, the law. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What is Paul talking about? He's saying, hey, remember back in the old day, in the Old Testament, Moses would encounter God. His face would then shine like the sun. You saw the old Ten Commandments movie, Charlton Heston, where his face was glowing. This is what Moses would do. He'd come back down from the mountain and his face would glow and he'd freak everybody out. And so they said, Moses, you need to wear a veil over your face as to not scare everyone away. Paul uses that story and brings it into the present time. And it's not just present for Paul. In fact, it's present for us. He says, nowadays, if we, the church, read the Old Testament, read the Old Covenant without Jesus in mind, it's as if we're reading it with a veil over our face. We cannot fully see and understand its intended purpose. We cannot fully grasp the depth of the meaning that it has for us if we haven't yet turned to the Lord. It is Jesus and only Jesus who lifts the veil over our hearts and over our eyes so that we can see the Bible as it was intended to be. And the point of the Bible, as we said, is to bear witness to Jesus. We will misunderstand the Old Testament and, in fact, the New Testament, too, every single time if we try to get to a place that leads us somewhere different than Jesus. If we want to go in and find a verse that justifies slavery or revenge or oppression, we can, but it's not the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible is to bear witness to Jesus, and he, Jesus, reveals the Bible. Let's conclude with Jesus' own words. Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, Jesus appears to some disciples. He walks with them on the Emmaus Road. It's a beautiful story. He has an interaction with them and he says some very important words to them. Verse 44 and 45. Then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I want to read verse 45 again. It's perhaps one of the most important verses for us to grapple with today. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. We will misunderstand the scriptures every single time if Jesus has not become the one who opens our mind to them, who has become the one who lifts the veil, who has become our lens by which we can comprehend its meaning. Jesus reveals God, Jesus reveals humanity, and Jesus reveals the Bible. If we want to get it right, 
If we want to be Christians today that represent Jesus to the world around us, we've got to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And Jesus is the one whom the Bible bears witness to. And so you may ask, hey, what translation should we read? What's the best interpretation of Scripture? Which, which Bible version should I get? I could care less about that. I care more about the spirit in which you read the Bible. And it is that through the spirit of Jesus that you read the Bible. Understanding that it's all in an effort to point to Jesus, who is the word of God. Let's not forget the logos, the divine logic, the divine understanding. How God understands God's own self is revealed in Jesus. And if we want to follow God, which I do, I want to represent him to those around me. I want our church to be a beacon of light in this community to represent God. And if we are going to do that, we must look like Jesus. The vision of our church, which has been and which will continue to be, is that we are following Jesus together. And I pray as we move into this new year that we understand Jesus is the one who reveals God, that Jesus is the one who reveals humanity, what we ought to be like. And number three, it is Jesus who reveals the Bible and what the purpose of Scripture is all about. Amen? And amen. If you would stand up with me, if you are able. What we do each Sunday as a church, we will confess our faith together. If you're